Hi, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. The snowgar might be one of Australia's most iconic trees. For many of us, it's a tree which symbolises the Australian Alps and the country's wild bush heritage, a frontier past which is slowly being forgotten. They're a haunting presence, grey gnarled trunks striped with orange, mottled green, smoke blue and grey bark twisted and heaving with age set against sheet white snow. In the Alps, which stretch from the ACT, through New South Wales and beyond the Victorian border, the snow gum dominates. It's the only tree in Australia that'll grow above 1,600 metres. But the snow gum is in danger. Scientists believe a beetle is killing snow gums throughout the region, and no one knows why. A previous dieback on the Monero Plain, a vast stretch of open cattle and sheep country in the foothills of the Snowies, gives a glimpse of what the future of our Alps could look like. The fear is that unless something is done, every tree above 1,600 metres could be lost. To find out more, I visited Kosciuszko National Park, where scientists are trying to figure out what's going on and how to stop it. Do you want music on, Rob? <laughs> uh, probably on. He's not wearing a seatbelt, very naughty. <laughs> Yeah, so I think we can just take a walk up the hill with Smiggins. I think that's a good spot to show you guys kind of kind of how bad it gets, I guess. And, and that's kind of interesting there too, because it's like everything's quite young and already like quite degraded. Like that's a spot I was saying it was like a, a salt lick. Uh, of course, so former pastoral land. Yeah, that, but like heavily grazed. So when did the grazing end up here? Joseph Meyer is an honours student studying environment and sustainability at the Australian National University. He's staying in the Perisher Valley while he does an insect survey. He's investigating the beetle believed to be killing the snow gums. Dieback's always like real complex, but in terms of like what causes it, it's this sort of like just everything blended up together. Like there's basically like not a lot going well for this place. Like in terms of like ecologically, there's not there's not heaps happening that is going to improve it. So, of course, it's going to get degraded. And then, you know, you have things that move in and just start. I mean, like, already you can just see, like, all these trees. Like, there isn't a single tree here that isn't. I mean, this tree is pretty good, pretty typical. So you have, like, that kind of horizontal cracking in it, in the bark. Because underneath, if we, like, clears out the phloem underneath the bark. The phloem is the bit which takes nutrients from the roots to the canopy, right? Yeah, it's like that outside living layer. It's only about a centimetre or two thick, but it has like all the sugar and all the kind of like juiciness of the tree. The inside's just water. It's basically a big straw. This place is essentially deserted in the summer. The lodges are empty, the chairlifts silent. The ground is carpeted in rough, dirty green pasture. A road snakes down the valley, flanked either side by hundreds and hundreds of dead snow gums. These were killed during the 2003 bushfires, a catastrophic event from which the area is still recovering. They're grey, skeletal. We turn away from the fire kiln up into Smiggin Holes, another ski resort just down the road from Perisher. The trees here are dying for another reason. See these big holes? Yeah. Like there's one, there's one. That's where they come out of. So like they spend like a lot of their time just going on the outside, like eating that juicy bit on the outside. Yeah. And then when they're mature enough and the conditions are right, they'll go in and they'll pupate and then they'll come out these little holes. They kind of bust out. <laughs> On every tree here, just above the last of the Smiggin Lodges, there's evidence of the Forocantha beetle. 
The first sign is a small hole with an ooze of sawdust trickling out the side. That's called frass, and it means there's beetle larvae working away on the trunk just underneath the bark. On a clear day, watch closely. Joseph tells me you can see little puffs of sawdust coming from the trunk. The beetle itself is about three centimetres long and coffee-coloured with tortoiseshell markings. It's flat like a cockroach and has long swooping antennae about the same length as its body. The one thing that kind of gives you a bit of hope, you know, this outside layer I was talking about, eucalypts, they can re-sprout from that. So say the borers get to there. Down right to about two feet before the bottom. Yeah, and then, you know, like potentially one of these shoots can become a new branch, but sometimes they go all the way down to the bowl. I mean, you can see all the sawdust down there. Oh gosh. Yeah, that big pile of sawdust that these bugs <laughs> have just spat out the hole. Yeah. There's a bug there. Sometime later, those larvae will become adults. They'll burst out the side, leaving a jagged exit wound in the bark. By this point, the damage has been done. Soon the bark will start to peel away, revealing centimetre-deep gouge marks, which run horizontally up and down the width of the trunk, like someone has dug their fingernails into it while being dragged away. So what's the future of a tree like this, which, you know, it's got lots of leaves on it. No, it's gone. It'll be like this in like a year. There are great examples of trees I saw last year in December that I was like, oh yeah, it's pretty early stages. It should be okay. And then this year that it's just completely gone. Like so, oh, the so tree's So this, this reasonably healthy looking tree, which you reckon is in a year's time going to look like this half dead fella yeah. right next to it. Yeah. Which kind looks like a classically dead tree. This group of trees or stand looks healthy. The trees are close and their boughs sag with age. But then you look up and see the dead branches poking through the thinning canopy tops of trees completely devoid of leaves. Joseph says that despite first impressions, all these trees are doomed. So you see how big those holes are. Like I mean, they're big beetles. Like you saw them. Like they're, they're quite big beetles. It's just fascinating. It's just amazing how they, this beetle can dig a inch deep, inch thick plug out of like, yeah, tree. On this, you can really see on this tree, you can, you know, you can see like the kind of laddering of the galleries the whole way up on both sides. Joseph's got a few different traps, a light trap called the bug dome, a sort of tent with an LED light meant to attract the bugs. He also has field traps set up at sites around the valley, which he checks every couple of days. He's trying to work out what is the most effective way of catching the insects. And do we know what makes a tree attractive to them? Nah, we, well, my kind of project, trying to work out exactly what the beetle is, yeah. or beetles are, because there might be multiple species, and then by working that out, you can work out like what that beetle is actually looking for, and then you can work out like why a tree would become susceptible, because they haven't been forever. The fact that they're here means they haven't been getting killed like this before, yeah, yeah, you know? Because sure. they're quite old, a lot of them. Like that. Now I'd heard for some years that there was dieback occurring in snow gum when people talked about the Monero dieback. So after Visiting Long Plain, I then arranged to go up to Perisher uh, about a fortnight later, fortnight to three weeks later, and when we arrived in Perisher, the scene was um, was shocking. That's Dr Matthew Brookhouse, the person who is sounding the alarm over snow gum dieback in the Alps. He's an academic at the Australian National University. I meet him at his office in Canberra. He's telling me the story about how he first came across snow gum dieback. He was invited to Perisher Valley by staff there, and asked if he could tell them what was happening to a couple of snow gums at the resort. What I saw there was not just one or two trees dying, but a good portion of the main valley in Perisher 
was in decline. Then what followed were a couple of very quick trips into Threadbow and to Guthier and then up here to Namadji National Park and to a few other areas. And it became evident to me very quickly that we had quite a substantial, very widespread and in some cases very, very severe dieback event playing out across the mountains. So what started as a very small-scale, very niche activity focused on one species that doesn't grow very large, has a very narrow range, has now grown to include the most highly regarded or favourite species among eucalypts for many people across an area that spans here in the ACT all the way through New South Wales and the Victorian Alps. That's a vast area, thousands of square kilometres in size and containing possibly hundreds of thousands of snow gums. We see trees across the entire range of decline at this, at this point in time, trees that are well and truly dead and have been dead for some years, through to trees that are just entering into, into an infestation. In terms of what we can do about it at this point, that, that picture is not at all clear. It's a sobering thought. These are the only trees which live above 1,600 metres and they're being wiped out with no obvious way to save them. Matt doesn't even know why the beetles have chosen now to attack, nor why they picked this tree or that tree, or whether the trees would die anyway without the beetle being involved at all. So how does it find a host? Is there something particular that it looks for in host trees? Is there a host species volatile that the insect is attracted to? Is there something about individual trees it's attracted to? Does it like drought-stressed trees? Does it like any tree? Um, Is it a matter of selectivity at all or is it just a matter of where the larvae can survive? You know, these are things that we, at this stage... We, we don't have an answer to, and it may not be an either or. It might be, you know, yes, they're attracted to this tree and yes, they're attracted to drought-stressed trees, but they're also attracted to others. And yes, there is an issue in terms of larval survival, um, but it's not necessarily one or the other. Matt thinks drought stress could play a key role. The snow gums have been weakened by years of successive and brutal droughts. Can you introduce me to your beef? Back at Joseph's field lab in Perisher, he tells me something similar. We kind of think... So snow gum generally have a quite a low drought tolerance. They're living in a place with a lot of water, so they don't really have a reason. They don't have a selection mechanism to adapt to water stress because they've never really been water stressed. And it doesn't really make sense for them, I guess, from a sort of competition standpoint to, to have that. There's no way for them to adapt it really. So they don't respond well to droughts at all. In fact, like when it gets really dry, they'll, they'll try to grow and you know, just grow themselves to death because they have no water. But we've had we've had droughts before. Yeah, I mean, there've been yeah. huge droughts up here, in particular, in the last twenty years, and you haven't seen all the trees die. Well, I mean, we are though. That's the thing. Yeah, we've had these droughts in the last twenty years, and the earliest sort of instances of these trees being attacked that we've seen date back to the nineteen eighties. So, in terms of like a compounding effect, you know, like I was saying about these like insect populations, if you have regular droughts maybe not constant droughts, but regular droughts, then you have this, say, like your first drought period where these insects that are always there, they get to kind of bolster their population a little bit. And then, you know, the next kind of drought cycle, it just happens again and it happens again and it happens again until you kind of have this like snowball until you're at where we're at now where it seems like there's just thousands and thousands of them around. 
and affecting every tree and every every tree susceptible. So that's the fear that that's now got its own momentum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it kind of does feel that way that there's enough trees that are just stressed and dead to kind of sustain this population until there's no trees. <laughs> like they you know, they can just keep eating away until they until they're done. Matt's question is an obvious one. Where does it end? When you see trees that are dead, that's one thing. But in a way to stand in a place where you are surrounded by trees that are still alive and from a distance appear to be, you know, really full of life, and then you get into those stands and you can see that they're on the edge of where the outbreak is occurring and you can see the upper parts of the tree are already attacked and you know that those trees have got 10 years at the most and they'll be dead too. And the insects will have moved on and have maybe moved down onto the next valley and, you know, where does this stop? We've been here before. Dieback is occurring throughout Australia for a variety of reasons and to different degrees. The Alpine region suffered a recent catastrophic dieback event. On the Monero High Plains, hundreds of thousands of ribbon gums in an area roughly the size of the ACT were killed over a 15-year period. If you drive from Cooma to Jindabyne, you can see it. A seemingly endless number of gum trees, in some cases centuries old, standing grey and lifeless along the road. The landscape should not look like this. In the Monero, it was a different native insect killing the trees. Something had changed, scientists still don't know what, and the eucalypts were suddenly unable to defend themselves. The ribbon gum was the dominant tree in that landscape. And now they're almost all gone. And if it's driven by something larger than some local landscape disturbance process, if it's driven by longer-term trends in climate, you know, it's not long before you find yourself wondering or not wondering anymore where it's going to end. Because when we're working in Kosciuszko, in the back of your mind, it's hard to put away what happened on the Monero High Plains. If we were to think about the dieback event that really played out there, people around here occasionally have said, well, that dieback process has ended. Well, that's true. That dieback process has ended because everything is dead. My family's never left country. My family's always lived on the western side. I'm on both sides of the mountain. So it's my home, it's my country, um, the country owns me. If I can possibly be here every day and every second day, that's where I am. Michelle Francis is a Narago elder local to the area. Narago custodians have lived in the Australian Alps for thousands of years, although many were dispersed by colonial violence. Michelle and her family first noticed something was wrong with the ribbon gums after the 2003 bushfires, a blaze which created an essentially continuous patch of scorched landscape from Victoria to the ACT. From a cultural perspective, very emotional because it affects our whole ecosystem. They're there for a reason. Every plant, you know, has a job to do. When one's removed, what's next? It's very sad to drive to Kanama Namaji which is our name for the mountain, to drive up and just see that and not see people jumping out and saying what's going on, you know, with the habitat, what's going on with our environment. That's one of the most striking things is that this area is 
incredibly popular, means a lot to a whole number of different people. But no one is jumping out of the car and screaming into the heavens. Why Does that shock you? Yeah, uh, I think we've grown away from that. Everybody wants to be doing everything now, yesterday. We're entitled to enjoy our life while we can. And to some degree, I understand that. But what's coming afterwards? And why aren't we just trying to do our little bit to save what we really, really have here to continue to be able to enjoy? Matt has the same question. Why don't people recognise this is a landscape which is heavily degraded and getting worse? And why has it taken so long for people to start doing something? He's continually surprised that he's actually breaking brand new ground in his research on snow gums. He tells me about a time he skied up to a beautiful stand of snow gums in 2008. At the time, he noticed that many were being attacked by wood-boring insects. It looked to him like the insects were mainly attacking fire-affected trees, and in the process, cleaning up the forest. A decade later, he went back to the same spot. It's late March, early April. It was hot. The ground was dusty. And every tree was dead. You know, 10 years ago, I skied out of here with friends and, you know, my girlfriend at the time is now my partner. You know, we have a five-year-old daughter now and I was just thinking, 10 years ago, this was, this was alive and healthy and now there isn't a single tree here alive. That was a difficult afternoon. When did this happen? Why is no one talking about this? If I come up here twice... And I can see that what it appears to be the entire lower elevation, at least, range of, of this species is disappearing and disappearing very quickly. Surely other people are seeing this. Matt says some people just presume the dead trees are the aftermath of a fire or part of the eucalypt's natural life cycle. It's not until 10 years down the track when you ask someone to compare a photograph of what was there 10 years ago with what's there now, that the truth really presents itself. It's not fire that has done this damage. It is an explosion in an insect population. But the key thing for these insects is that it's not like fire. It's not like a fire that comes through and just wipes a stand out in in one afternoon. And then 10 years down the track, all those trees that were burned have generated these new shoots and they're growing away. And yes, it was devastating, but the the forest is recovering. That's not what's happening. What we see happening is that the trees are attacked consistently over years and in some cases for a decade. And by the time the above ground part of the plant has died, there are no resources left for the plant to call upon to recover with. I have seen hundreds of trees that have been attacked and then re-sprouted from the base only to have those sprouts just die. Despite the annual rush of tourists to the Australian Alps and despite the snow gums being so beloved, people don't seem to know that this is happening. This, this process is playing out and it's, it's being mistaken for something else. And my suspicion is that that's why it has gotten to the point it has without without any major research effort being focused on it up until this point because it just driving through the landscape and looking at trees from a distance, you simply don't see it. That's a terrible thing because 
these forests are slipping away in front of people's faces and, and they simply can't see it. Michelle says more needs to be done to protect the park if it's going to continue as a unique ecosystem and as a tourist attraction. It's sad to think that people don't see these trees as life. They give us life. They are alive. They tell their own stories. We actually call them the old wise ones. They'll talk to you. They'll give you something back. It's not just about when you look at them. It's a life. It's a change of colour. I mean, they're the most beautiful thing through the seasons in how they change, how they put on a display. You know, that is life. And if we lose that, we lose the National Park. It'll just be a hot bowl where you'll come and there'll be nothing. It'll be devastating. They're absolutely screaming out going, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to save us? And how are you going to bring life back into the park? It is a skeleton. There's no other words to describe it. It's death, you know, at the top of the mountain. And yeah, I don't understand right now why they don't think that that's going to have a big effect on all of the tourism that's here. I don't see it being rocket science. Something seriously has to be done about it and national parks need to put it, be put on notice. Do you want to see a bigger role for Narago Custodians in the park? Absolutely. The land owns us. We've got to be there maintaining it 24-7. Michelle and I drive out to an area of the Monero affected by dieback. We're barely 20 minutes from Jindy when grey, lifeless eucalypts start popping up in rolling paddocks along the highway. Initially, I only noticed a few dead gums here and there. But as I looked closer, more and more appeared to me. We're standing by a barbed wire fence on the side of the road, looking out into a farmed landscape. It's an emotional sight for Michelle. So this has been, it's been a hard hour or so this afternoon, hasn't it? Yes, and then I've just turned my head and I'm just seeing a massive line these trees have to be at least 100 years old or more and they're all gone it's a sad hour and it's a sad time every time i have to drive to the mountains it's like a count every time i drive up oh does that look like you know there's more disappearing i'm keeping an eye on them now scientists think the ribbon gums on the monero plain like the snow gums at higher altitudes were already weakened, which meant they were unable to defend themselves against the hungry insects. Overgrazing, drought stress, fire damage, climate change, potentially even a lack of indigenous cool burning practices have all been touted as possible culprits. But Michelle thinks a big part of the issue is that it's gone on too long unnoticed. She says we're disconnected from the country. We just don't know anymore what the landscape should look like. Maybe people think that, oh, well, after a certain time trees die. However, one of the oldest ones, Snowy Gum, is in Victoria and he's over 400 years old. And he, and I'm calling him a he because he's robust and he's massive and every limb and colour that, you know, spans from his body tells a story. He long time, long time. Um, So maybe they do think that trees die off and yeah, another one will pop up. But they don't. <laughs> What's there from the beginning is there. And 
yeah, that undergrowth will keep bringing up the new ones, but there's nothing here to bring up any, anything. Those stresses mentioned, drought, fire and a long history of grazing, are also present in higher altitudes. Matt Brookhouse believes this is key. The wood borers are feeding on trees which are already sick. The next question is, how do you stop it? If a tree in your backyard had a beetle infestation, you could treat it. An arborist armed with readily available pesticides would do the trick. That won't work on the level of an ecosystem. The distances are just too vast. The number of affected trees just too massive. And what would a chemical do if you were to disperse it over the entire High Plains environment? This lack of certainty over what we can do about it makes Matt anxious. It's why he's so desperate to find out as much as he can, so hopefully he can help develop the tools to save the snow gums. What happens if there is no way we can slow the insects as they gradually move across the landscape? What are we left with? Are we left with the scenario that, that played out in the Monero, that Yes, the outbreak ends, but it, it ends because there's nothing left for the insects to eat. And it's difficult not to be affected by that. Michelle is particularly concerned at what she sees as problems with the National Parks Organisation itself and how they're managing Kosciuszko. Parks do what parks want to do. Parks have their own ideas in how they want to maintain and look after the park itself and with no um, Aboriginal liaison officer or traditional custodians that are in there working, how do you make the difference? How do you talk to these people to make those differences? It comes down to science. We've been doing science for over 65,000 years, you know. So in res- response to parks, they're not doing anything about it and they've got no programs to do anything about it. I spoke to parks. They said they're helping to support satellite and ground-based surveys to try and understand the extent of the dieback throughout the affected area. They did not respond to my specific question about Indigenous involvement in Kosciuszko National Park, other than to point to the app where members of the public can report sightings of the wood-boring beetles or dieback in snow gums. There is a memorandum of understanding between the park and Narago representatives, but Michelle says it isn't clear how that MOU has worked so far. The snow gum is the only tree that can survive in its ecological niche. The sensitive alpine environment above 1,600 metres, its loss would be catastrophic and have flow-on effects throughout an environment that covers New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria. Matt explains how devastating that could be. I suppose you have to think about the kind of loss associated with the loss of the Great Barrier Reef. The Barrier Reef is itself alive. Coral that builds the reef is alive but also all of the attendant fish and other species that depend upon that structure. In terms of snow gum, you then, okay, we lose only one species in the overstory, but it's that structure that then impacts upon every invertebrate and vertebrate species that is using that structure, much like animals and, and other organisms are using, using the barrier reef itself. So substantial cascading ecological losses. Back at Perisher, Joseph is working hard, trying to help protect those venerable trees which live in Australia's high country. He says as the climate changes, the problem could spread even higher on the Alps, completely transforming the landscape. And it's not like these are young trees, you know? There are trees out there that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. 
and yeah this is what's killing them like they've been through everything and then then you see them getting killed by this so it can kind of be a bit alarming to think about i think um when you kind of play it out and you're like if no one does anything and no one even cares then that's where it ends up no trees from Rennick's gap to Charles pass just nothing Joseph Meyer there, he's hoping to find a way to save the snow gun. And if you think you might have spotted a Forocantha beetle anywhere in the country or a dieback-affected snow gum in the Alps, go to saveoursnowgum.org to report your sightings. That's saveoursnowgum.org. And that's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. If you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. You can follow me on Twitter at TomMelville124. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Special thanks this week go to Kate Matthews, Sitasai Didavong and John Paul Maloney. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>